0: As we come now before the very Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, um, I'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. You'll find Bibles there in your pews as well as the page number in your bulletin if you'd like to turn there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And before we read, would you, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that on our own, we are are dead to hear such things, that our ears are stopped and our eyes are blind, but Lord, would you make us alive with you? Would you awaken faith in us, an anchor of hope that is in you, a love for you, Lord, as we dive into these things now, would you cause us to hear and to believe, guide us by your spirit now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to take here this morning these first uh, 11 verses, the whole chapter here is about resurrection, but uh, we'll just take up the first 11 verses. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll begin here in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. This is the Word of God. Now, today is Easter Sunday. I imagine you probably already knew that based on all the things we've said so far, the flowers, the suit You know, it's Easter Sunday. This is the day in which we celebrate the day that Christ first rose from the dead. So in that context, it should be no surprise that today we're looking here at a section of Scripture that centers directly on resurrection. However, If you're one of those who worship with us regularly every Sunday, uh, this text may come as a little bit unexpected to you because every week since January we have been in the book of James. So this is a little bit of a pivot here. Last week on Palm Sunday, we were still in James, we had just finished. Chapter three, and so some of you, if you were look, thinking ahead to, to Easter and peeking ahead at the next text that was to come, would have read this as the next section. This is James four verse one. What what causes quarrels and fights among you? Isn't this that your passions are at war within you? Yikes! That doesn't sound very eastery, you know. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Oh, oh uh, he, he's risen indeed, you know? Uh, we, we could have gotten there, I suppose. The truth is that we could have stayed there in those ver- next verses in James for this week, and we still could have talked a lot about resurrection. We know that James's main purpose in writing his letter is to call us as Christians to be doers of the word. That his goal is that we would grow in faith and love for God in such a way that it would flow out into glad obedience to God. So this would affect the way that we fight and quarrel amongst each other even. So this sort of growth or obedience to God is only possible when our hearts are changed by Jesus, and that is what Jesus does in his death and resurrection, that Jesus in his death is is putting all of a believer's sin to death that is the wrath of God, the guilt before God would be gone, and that Christ also in his new life on Resurrection Sunday brings us into new life with him too, that we are born again by his spirit. So a text about fights and quarrels and how we deal with those is a resurrection text because that resurrection is how we're to deal then with those fights and quarrels. This is true, by the way, about just about any text in the Bible. You could open your Bible up, lick your finger, and point down pretty much anywhere, and it will be only one or two steps away from resurrection, because the whole Bible bleeds of our need for new life that's only found in Jesus. That's why Christ told his disciples that all the scriptures, not just the New Testament, all the scriptures bear witness about me, he said. So, even though we could have stayed uh, this Sunday again in James, especially since today's, you know, a special Memorial Holy Day, um, I wanted us to take some time just looking directly at Christ's resurrection and we could have looked at the end of really any of the Gospels to see that. That's where we see Christ alive again from the grave. But, but today I took us to this text here in 1 Corinthians. This is a natural text for us to turn to on this day, partly because 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. It's where there's the most extended explanation about what the resurrection is and means. But we're also here this Sunday because James, the the letter of the author that we've been in so long, James gets a mention here from Paul. gets a little shout out uh, from Paul. It's in verse 7, if you were reading along, that James is part of the list that Paul gives here of, of eyewitnesses. James was one of the people who, who saw and interacted with Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Paul gives us a big list of folks who were part of that uh, group. The list is long, but it's not extensive. It doesn't, He doesn't list everyone here. For example, we also know Mary Magdalene, in particular, uh, saw Jesus. Cleopas, uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, the Virgin uh, Mary, interacted with Jesus after he rose from the dead. They're not named here, but they're part of this. His his purpose in giving in this long list is not to give us every single person, but he's telling us, he's reminding us as the listener that the resurrection of Jesus is not just a theory the resurrection of Jesus is not Paul's own invention there were witnesses of these things And many, many named witnesses. He even gives us uh, their names so that we can check their stories. He says some have fallen asleep and some some have died, but many are still living. So go ask them and they'll tell you what they've seen. We know uh, several of the Bible writers take this approach in wanting to emphasize the reality of the resurrection. Luke does it at the beginning of Acts. This is how Luke starts off the whole book of Acts. Listen for the section about resurrection. In the first book, O Theophilus, he writes, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is telling us here, don't just believe me. There are many proofs, many people who saw such things. We could look at other places in the Bible that talk about this John, and First John, for instance, talks about the reality, the tangibleness of Christ's resurrection. It is important to these writers of the Bible that their listeners know that what they are saying is actually true. That these things are based in fact, based in evidence, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just legend, it's not just a parable we tell, it's not just a symbol of love and sacrifice, it's not even some sort of socio-political power play, you know, that the disciples were trying to establish some credibility if they can somehow get people to believe that Jesus is still alive. They count the resurrection of Jesus as verifiable history. And it's a history on which they stake their entire lives, for many of them, even to the point of being killed for the reality of that. Side note, by the way, just a bonus to throw in here. A skeptic of Christianity, if someone's a skeptic of Christianity, that person might not themselves believe that Christ is really alive. There are many who don't believe that. They may not themselves believe that Christ is really alive, but what they may not say is that the writers of the Scripture didn't believe it. They can't tell us that these writers did not believe that Jesus was alive. These people believed this was true, that Christ was dead and he's now alive. And they believed it was true because they saw it. They saw him in many times and in many places. And now they want us as the listener to reckon with that reality. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians is not just giving us a a book report. He's not just passing along things he's been told. He's not giving us a research lecture, lecture here. What he gives us here is what he calls the gospel that he's preached. The gospel, by definition, is news. Good news. That's what the word means. And it's good news that has real impact on our lives. For Paul, it had impact on him. He said, the gospel is the the grace of God that makes me what I am. But also the gospel for us, if we believe, the gospel is the thing in which you stand. The gospel is the thing by which you've been saved. It's that which you hold fast to. The gospel is really necessary for our lives. Let me show you how and what this actually means. Let me put all this back in context. If we were to read through the whole book, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians in one sitting, we won't, we don't have time for it. We could, but we won't. If we were to do that, if we were to read through it all at once, even if you've never read it before, you would notice that what Paul's writing is a letter. And even more specifically, it's a A response letter. And he's writing to the church at Corinth in Greece. This is a real place that you can even today go and visit. The response letter means that the people who were in Corinth, the Christians there, had written to Paul first. And in part of their writing, they had asked Paul a series of questions about how they were supposed to live their lives as followers of Jesus. Jesus. We don't have the letter that was sent from them to Paul. What we have now is Paul writing back to them. And you can see in his letter, especially in the second half of it, Paul begins to address each of their particular questions one at a time. You can hear which one he's addressing because he'll say, now concerning such and such, and then he'll write a whole bunch about it. So now concerning sexual relations, he says. And all the teenagers get really uncomfortable. Now concerning the sexual relations. And then he writes a bunch about how we're to engage with our bodies since we belong to God. That this is not just something we can think our own bedroom is our own business. Then he says, now concerning the betrothed or the the engaged one. And then he talks about how we're to live in and even prepare for marriage. A marriage that honors God. Now concerning food offered to idols, he says, which to us sounds very foreign, but in context is about how to interact and be respectful to a culture that does not believe what we believe. Here's now concerning the spiritual gifts, he says. Here's here's how to serve each other in a variety of unique talents and gifts, and now concerning the collection of offerings. So here's how we handle the money, and here's where it goes. There's all these very specific things about our lives. So this letter is not a dusty essay of just empty doctrines that preachers try to string out as long as they can to bore you as much as we're able. This letter is what it looks like To really live, it's what it looks like to live in a way that is good and wise and honors God in a way that we were meant to. So, Paul, in this series of addressing the questions, he gets then to the end of the letter. And at the end, he he gives a closing greetings. He says, hey, here's my travel plans. Here's where I'm going to go. But before he closes the letter, he's answered all these questions. Before he closes, he now spends all of chapter 15, where we are now, all of that, unpacking the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And in this chapter, there's not a specific application about what we're supposed to do with this. Now, here's how you're supposed to live. This is just information about the resurrection. But in putting it here, it's as if Paul says to us, I've told you all these practical things, but I, but I cannot let you go without telling you this. Dear Corinthians, I know you've asked me all these particular questions what you, to answer, and I did that. And I know you didn't ask about this, but I need to tell you this anyway. This is a truth, he says, which is a matter of first importance, he says in verse 3. This is of first importance, And the reason he does this is this. If I've lost you somewhere, come back. This is the most important thing. In the scripture, what we do is always, always tied to what is true. What we do is always tied to what is true. Which means, if something in your life is out of whack, if something has gone askew or is falling apart, if something about what to do has gone wrong, it's likely that there is a problem with something we believe to be true as well. Those two things are, are tied together. And so Paul here wants to help us set those things straight. Now, what is the relationship between what is true and what to do? The relationship between what to do and what is true are not just next to each other. As, you know, two oxen who are pulling a cart together. They're not just next to each other. It's that one drives the other. One is the ox that pulls the cart. So the thing that comes before is the truth. The truth is the ox that pulls the cart, but the doing comes after. It tags along behind and is pulled by the truth. The scripture clearly cares about both, what to do and what what is true, but the foundational part is the, the truth. That's what makes the whole cart go at all. So Paul says later in this chapter, if what he's telling us about the resurrection is untrue, that is, if if Christ has not risen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then the whole cart is no good. If there's no resurrection," Paul says, we're, we're misrepresenting God. we've lied to you about God, our preaching's in vain, your faith is in vain. So if we take out the resurrection of Jesus, this is not just you know taking a brick out of a Jenga tower that it's a little wobbly, but it's still pretty good. You can't take resurrection of Jesus out of Christianity. The whole thing will collapse. The resurrection of Jesus is the ox to the cart. And if resurrection is untrue, our cart is hitched to a dead ox. And that would be a terrible, useless, hopeless place to be. Paul's argument then is that this really is true if the resurrection really is true and if we really hold it to, to be true, that, that this resurrection of Jesus will be the strong ox that carries our whole lives and will produce in us what he says in the last verse of the chapter, it'll produce in us steadfastness, immovability, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, whew. All that to say, well, we need to ask then this. What are the big truths that will carry the cart? What actually are the truths that are of first importance here? There are lots of truths he could mention to us. Which ones are of first importance? If we look closely in the text... There are four true things he tells us that are all about Jesus, and he gives them to us very concisely as a sort of creed, a nice, tidy statement of belief. The four truths are these, that Christ died, was buried, was raised, and appeared. You can see them starting in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried... That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. And real quick, before we unpack what's on this list of four, you'll notice there are a lot of things that are not on this list. Not on this list of central truths are details about racial relations, not on this list are discussions of political party alliances. Not on this list are thoughts and opinions about vaccines or ethics of abortion. It's not on his list of things of first importance. And if a person were to look at American Christians from the outside, depending on who it is or what group they're looking at, if people were looking at us from the outside, they might think that some of those other things are central to our beliefs, that we care more about politics or race or vaccines or abortions than we care about Jesus. And the reason why they might think that is because they hear those things from our mouths. Those sorts of things dominate our conversation, and, and, and if we let that happen too much, Jesus gets pushed further and further to the side until he becomes just a side piece, if he's even there at all. We know, of course, these other things matter. Race matters, abortion matters, all these hot issues matter, and the Bible gives us lots of good wisdom to wrestle through them, but we have to be careful not to let the cart come before the ox, or else we'll lose the ox altogether. Now, if we're to keep the ox at the center, if we're to keep Jesus as central, as the chief cornerstone, that's how we're to have any hope dealing with the rest of all these other aspects of life. So let's look at him now as the center. Paul sets these four truths clearly in our sights. And to help us, I guess, to, to think through them, he sets them in two groups of two, two couplets. And the first in each couplet is the core truth. The second thing is the thing that confirms its reality. So Christ died and was buried. The burial confirms the reality of his death. And then he says Christ was raised and appeared. So the appearing confirms the existence of the raising. So the main things then are the two at the front of each couplet, that Christ died and was raised. And, and Paul gives us just a few clarifications about those things. Truths, he tells us that we need to know. So let me briefly address two, so a few things just about these two truths, and then we'll be done. Okay? A couple of things, one thing we should notice about both of them. When he says Christ died and Christ was raised, when he says that in the text, he says both of these things were in accordance with the Scriptures, that he died according to the scriptures and he was raised according to the scriptures. You may have noticed that. In other words, neither one of those things was an accident or a backup plan. His death was not an accident, nor was his raising an accident. It's not as if Jesus in his life bumped into too many people who were too bad of sinners and thought, we got to do something about this. Nor is it that, you know, he, he got the Pharisees a little bit too mad at him and things spiraled out of control. Or, you know, the, he, the pushback on the Romans got to be a little bit too much. And, and so when things got out of control, Jesus got himself killed and so God had to reset his life again and that's why he was raised. That's not it. His death and his resurrection were both written long ago. These things were all according to the perfect plan of God by his own foreknowledge and the work of his own purpose. Now, let's look at each one very briefly individually. What was God's purpose in relation to his death and burial? We're told specifically that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That is the fundamental thing. It's not just that Jesus passed through death to conquer it. You know that he would destroy the enemy of death so that we can live together with him uh, in heaven. Yea, Jesus. Jesus. He does that, too, in some sense, but that's not the main reason for his death. He died for our sin. That is, the necessity of his death was to take on the consequence of sin, the punishment of sin, the wages of sin, which are death. And that's more than just death of the body, although that comes too, it's death of the spirit. That is, when we die in our body, the spirit and the body are torn apart. But when we die in our spirit, when we perish, if we die in spirit, what's torn apart is us from the presence of God. That's what Jesus faced on the cross, by the way. The worst part of the cross was not all the blood, the nails, the, the whipping, the, 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 the cross itself and the woodenness of it that Jesus actually died probably because of asphyxiation on the cross. That's not the worst part. The worst part was the death of his Spirit. in the sense that Christ on the cross was forsaken by the Father, that the good presence of his Father was removed from him. This was the judgment that comes upon sin, and Christ drank that down to the very bottom, took every drop for sin upon himself so that we would not have to drink it. Jesus did not do this blindly or haphazardly. He did it For sin. For our sin, the scripture says, which means for yours, for mine. He was pierced for our transgression. We need to get that truth. He died for our sin in accordance with the scripture. The second major truth, then, we'll take, ride this wave to the end, is that Christ was raised and appeared, but specifically we're told that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Have you ever, ever wondered why it was significant that Jesus was raised on the third day? You know? Why not one day? Wouldn't that have been easier? Or, or raised, raised on the fourth day? <laughs> You know, one extra to wait, raised on the 30th. Why was it it significant that Christ was raised on the third day? Partly because that's just what actually happened. He just died on one day and was raised on the third day. That's just the fact of the matter. But there is some more deeper significance to the third day. Jesus talks about this in the days long before he died in Matthew chapter 12. And in this interaction, Jesus compares his own coming, death, and resurrection. He compares that to the experience of the prophet Jonah. You know, the guy that went into the whale, or technically the fish. And he calls that experience a sign. But this is what Jesus says here about this. Matthew chapter 12, where is it? Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let me paraphrase what Jesus is saying to us here. He's talking about the prophet Jonah, who was all but dead in the fish. You know, he, he went against God's ways and, and, and got thrown, thrown off the boat into the ocean and is eaten by the great fish, and for three days he's in the fish and then belched back out onto the land, is alive again in some sense. And Jonah, this now living prophet who's alive again, is pronouncing the judgment of God against Nineveh for Nineveh's own sin and wickedness. And the people who lived in Nineveh, who heard Jonah, who saw Jonah, they heard these words of judgment and they turned from their sin. They repented and they cried out to God in a great chorus. They cast themselves upon God's mercy and God did have mercy upon them. The people were saved from their sin. They did not experience the judgment of God's wrath. In comparing himself to Jonah, how his own death and resurrection would come in three days, Jesus is saying his own situation is similar but bigger. Something greater than Jonah is here, he says, which means there's a greater salvation the life that comes through Jesus is greater than the life that comes through Jonah that through Jesus we have resurrection life that is the, the mortal puts on immortality but that also means that judgment is greater as well that there is judgment if Jonah is rejected but for those who do not receive Jesus there is wrath still to pay wrath that unless we repent and call out for the mercy of God through Jesus, we will taste forever. Easter is supposed to be a day of celebration. And it is, you know. It's a good thing to say happy Easter. We want that. I want happy Easter. I want that for you too. But in order to get there, we have to keep the cart, or the ox before the cart. That is, that happiness of Easter has to be anchored in the twin truths that that Christ died for our sin, and that he was raised on the third day. And if it's anchored in that, the day comes for us as a day gushing with victory and freedom and life that is real and lasting. It's a celebration, though, that comes only by way of Jesus. To know this sort of life, we must repent of sin and believe that Christ has died for that sin. If we do, then the life of Christ is our life too, and his grace to us is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus we know that you have done what we are unable to do that you have conquered death and sin itself lord would you would you bring us with you that is cause sin to be dead in us and raise us again to new life on the third day would you bring us to believe in you in a way that makes us alive And we ask all of this in in Jesus' name. Amen.